Okay. Someone must have a bigger head than I have. <laughs> All right, we're going to get started because we've got a lot that we want to talk about this morning. So if you're here for the depression uh, thing, come on in. There is a handout coming. I don't know why, but it's coming. Um, so you'll probably want to have the handout today. And I think uh, Akeen is, is copying it right now. Okay. Well, let's pray, and then we will, we will start. Heavenly Father, I um, just pray that you help right now, Lord, uh, even in the fluster of trying to get ready and set up for this morning. I pray that you help me, Lord, to speak clearly. I pray that you help us to listen well and even to apply things as you would have I'll supply them. Let me pray this in your name. Amen. So last time we looked at preliminary matters in our study of mental health and the church. And the reasons for the study, the complexity, and some underlying dispositions to guide us in our study. Today we're going to sit and listen Again, because depression and anxiety are most common in the church, we will listen to these experiences. This is very important to do when you are supporting someone. Everyone experiences these illnesses differently, though there are some common themes and images. The temptation in helping people with mental illness is to quickly package it, I think, and try to offer a solution which is natural to do when we don't understand something of such complexity. Often though, we need to enter into a person's world before we can offer help. We need to weep with those who weep, just as we may need to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we see that exhortation in Romans 12, 15. Though the weeping together is undoubtedly probably the most uncomfortable. So let's start with, with depression. I have suffered and struggled with depression since 1993. It's been a long time. My experience hasn't been consistently tough. I've had bouts of deep depression, but I've had good and stable times with treatment that I have found that works for me. I have, though, even in my lowest points, managed to keep putting one foot in front of the other and to take care of the things that I need to take care of. At times, I've been pretty good at hiding the fact that I am depressed, such as when I'm at work or at church. But there are times when others have to ask if I'm actually okay, because I'm not myself. And the people who pay the most for my depression are my family members, because I can hold things together for the day, but when I get home, 
I can crash. So what is depression like for me then, and at risk of being vulnerable? Because I think that's what we, we need to be. But what is depression like for me when I am in a bout of depression? These are not only my experiences and thoughts, but they have been borrowed from many different accounts. Every one of them, though, that I've read rings true with my experience. And there should be a handout coming, and if you get it in time, there, there'll be a space for you just to jot down phrases and ideas um, that you hear. First, depression is a deep sense of being forsaken. And I think that God is no longer for me. In fact, he was never for me. I think that I fooled myself and others around me into thinking that I'm a Christian, but tend to doubt that I am. I can remember times when there was a sense of God's presence and see what I think was his hand in my life, but then I think God has turned his back on me. And I become bitter towards God, perhaps cynical. And it's not just a sense that I am forsaken by God. I see that I am driving those I love away, at least emotionally, for I have become intolerable to be with. When I am depressed, I am hard to be around. They seem critical of everything I do, um, my family, I, th I think, and it seems that I just can't do anything right in their eyes. When in fact, they are acting quite normally, and I am the one skewing every word and intention. Well, I think that God has forsaken me in one moment, the next I'm crying out to God and pleading that he will help me and restore me because I have to trust that he hasn't forsaken me. And in my de de uh, desperation, I cry out in dependence on him for strength. Another thing that depression is, is um, it's gray and ashes. I would describe it as gray and ashes. Nothing holds pleasure anymore. Nothing I previously enjoyed seems worth doing. Everything becomes a chore. I try to find some pleasure, but pleasure is sought along the path requiring the least amount of effort. The things that entertain and numb with little effort are the things that become most appealing. Eating is, some, eating is something I have to do, not something I want to do. In fact, why do anything? What else is there to do but sleep the time away because unconsciousness is a welcome escape from the banality of living? I want to die to go be with Jesus, but because I don't think I really have faith, the thought of dying is both welcoming and terrifying at the same time. One of the biggest things I feel is that there's a cloud following me wherever I go and it's sunny somewhere else, but it's raining just on me. I can see happiness and joy in others, but for me, happiness and joy is always beyond my reach. It's hard not to resent others for their joy and happiness when I'm struggling so much to even put one foot in front of the other. The underlying attitude of all of this is, I just don't care. 
I no longer care about relationships, even those closest to me. And I don't do anything, and I don't care that anything is left undone. Depression is a, is a constant weight. It feels like there is a weight on my shoulders that is difficult to bear. It pushes me down. I can almost feel it pushing you down. I want to get out from under it, but it doesn't let me go. And when I try to rise in hope and do the things I know I need to do, it is always there making everything so much more difficult. It's like running a race with a full backpack. Everything requires extra effort. It's like drowning is another image. Drowning in sadness and despair. Sorrow and sadness surround me and threaten to consume me. Any resistance or frustration from others is a source of tears. I see that I'm pushing people away, and while it hurts me on one level, in another sense, I, I don't know what, I, I don't care. They're better off without me anyway, I think. And I know that I twist every normal thing that people say into an attack, and many times I just cry and I don't even know why I'm crying. There's so much loss, loss of joy, relationships, peace, hope, and maybe that's it. There's just so much loss. And with depression, I, I build up a wall. I build a wall. Depression sends me into self-protection mode. I'm one straw away from having my back broken and everything people do, including their normal day-to-day -day imperfections and annoyances, seem to interfere with a tentative piece that I've built and it threatens to make my brick wall come tumbling down. And I become angry with everyone and everything. Everything and everyone and everything is a source of stress. And how dare they kick me when I'm already down. Now, that's a jumble of thoughts um, that have fit through my my mind when I am depressed. I'm sure that I've left some things out and that's okay. But what you need to understand is that these are the things that I, I fight. These are the thoughts and ideas that float through my head. They are frequent when I'm depressed, but not constant, thankfully. They can be combated and they don't have to be given into. And there are lighter times when they aren't so persistent. And when things are going well, which they often are with treatment, when the Lord brings me through a depressive episode, they actually largely go away for quite a long time, even a few years. What those thoughts that I have described to you represent is the assault. For that is what the illness, not just mental health, of mental ill health, of depression is. It's it feels like an assault, an assault on my person rising up from within me. So what I can hope you can see is that the illness of depression is not a normal case of the blues. It, it isn't. It isn't. It is irrational, oppressive, in such a way that it is an, an enemy to all that's good. It, it truly comes to have a life of its own. And it affects my whole being. 
Now, I described my experience with depression in terms of thoughts and impressions. And when we talk about depression, it is common to use thoughts and phrases instead of coherent, logical discourse. But it is also common to use metaphors and poetic ideas. One author, Andrew Solomon, in The Anatomy of Melancholy, says about depression, I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body hasn't found out yet. Another writes, if pain leads to childbirth, it is tolerable. But if it just leads to blackness or nothing, then it threatens to destroy. Listen to some of the phrases that one preacher used to describe his experience with depression. He says, depression makes us like those who traverse the howling desert. We endure winters. We are bruised as a cluster trodden in the wine press, and we enter the foggy day amid storms like those caught in a hurricane. The waters continually wave upon wave over the tops, roll continually wave upon wave over the tops of us. We are like those haunted with dread in the dark dungeon or sitting in a corner under an accumulation of pains and weaknesses and sorrows. We sit in darkness like one who is chilled and numbed and over whom death is slowly creeping. We are panting warriors and poor fainting soldiers crying out for relief from this long fight of affliction. This preacher was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, who himself struggled with deep depression. Ever since a prankster yelled, fire, in a full service on October 19, 1856, at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. Seven people died, and 28 were seriously injured. Charles was 22. And this seems to have been the catalyst that resulted in a lifelong struggle with depression for him. His wife, Susanna, said of Charles after that incident that her beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And what a tragedy if he would never have preached again. Sometimes the sight of a Bible would make Charles cry. This is Charles Spurgeon. Sometimes the sight of a Bible would make him cry, and many times he thought about how much he wanted to die. Depression has a logic of its own, writes a writer, and I can tell you who it is later. Depression has a logic of its own. Once it settles in, it can't distinguish between a loving embrace, the death of a close friend, and the news that a neighbor's grass is growing. Decisions? Impossible. The mind is locked. How can you choose? Nothing is working. 
The engine of your mind is barely turning over. And aren't most decisions emotional preferences? How can you decide when you have no emotional preferences? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the only thing you know is that you are guilty, shameful, and worthless. It is not that you have sinned or reaped. It's not that you have sinned or reaped futility. It is that you are a mistake. You are futility. Now, I'm not saying all this to depress you, but I'm trying to describe to people who have never experienced depression what this feels like. It's it's not easy. It's not just get over it and stop being so sad. Everyone gets sad from time to time. Think on the positive side of things. It's, It's not that for a lot of people. My dad is a psychiatrist. He was a psychiatrist. He's retired now. And he worked as a professor of psychiatry at the university, and he, he loved his patients. He really did love his patients. They were, they were more than just medical cases to them. They were, he loved them. And, he, and uh, he has a picture. I tried to get it up here, but I didn't get it. But he has a picture um, that this, one of his patients drew for him, and it is a door. It is a door, and what you see is the door framed by cracked and crumbling plaster with brick showing through. And you can see on the door that there used to be a handle, but it's gone. So for this person, this door, which symbolizes possibility, it symbolizes hope, it symbolizes escape, was locked to him. It was gone. There was no handle. It was, a, a, it was trapped. He was trapped. And all he could see was crumbling decay on this side of the door. Um, it was, uh, my dad loves that picture because he loved the guy. I would like to say it ended, he, I would like to say that it ended well, but this man took his life, which really, really upset my dad. But that's what it's like. And oftentimes with depression, all we have left is our images or metaphors or things to describe what is hard to describe. Let's look at anxiety. And I don't struggle with anxiety like I do depression, but a lot of people do struggle with anxiety. And with a generalized anxiety disorder, metaphor, images, and phrases are not as necessary in describing the experience. The symptoms are not as nebulous and blurry, but are often specific, with specific physical effects. The nebulousness may be in the fact that you can't always pinpoint what is driving the intense anxiety, though with panic attacks, you often can. They're very specific. The main features about the generalized anxiety disorder is that everything becomes a source of worry and the person cannot stop. So this is Tina's story. Tina's story with anxiety. anxiety. I have always been an anxious person. I tend to be a worry wart. Friends and family often tell me I worry too much. It was very difficult to control my worries during my high school years, which included worrying about being on time for class appointments, my grades, losing my friends, making my parents angry, my appearance, whether my teachers liked me and which university I would attend. 
And since then, I have also worried a great deal about whether my boyfriend will leave me, the health of my cats, my work performance, my weight, and having enough time in the day to get everything done. Controlling these worries is very difficult, and they often intrude when I am trying to relax alone at the end of each day. During downtime at work and when out with friends, it has left me feeling constantly exhausted. I have constant muscle tension and body aches. I am frequently irritable. I actually can't remember the last time I felt relaxed as I am always jumpy, tense, and on guard for something bad to happen. For the past six months, I have not been sleeping very well. I often lie in bed worrying for several hours, wake up frequently during the night, or wake up too early and can't fall back asleep. On days when my worrying is really bad, I have difficulty concentrating at work, and several friends have commented on the fact that I often seem distracted. I have this need to check my work all the time, even though it means I often have to work late. When I talk to my friends or family, asking what they think about my appearance or my worries, they get frustrated with me because I just can't stop. I know my worry is a problem, but it feels like if I stopped worrying, everything would fall apart or get worse. So here is a really intense experience with, with anxiety again. And it's not just I'm a little bit anxious today. It's, it's, an, it's a debilitating thing. So, and that's often the case when, it, when something creeps into the realm of illness, it becomes quite debilitating. You can't function regular in a normal way. Depression and anxiety um, and illnesses have many overlapping symptoms and sometimes it is difficult to say that this is depression and this is anxiety without carefully listening to people's situations. And this has actually led to a creation of a mixed anxiety depressive disorder. What is apparent, however, is that both of these illnesses involve regular emotions that are taken to an extreme such that depression or anxiety takes on a life of its own. And that's one of the best ways to characterize it. It's a life of its own. It seems to be a self-fueling system. There is a grip in these conditions that go beyond people's regular sinful tendencies, though sin is never absent from them. Uh, it's a reinforced hold on a person such that it is like something out of their control is driving them. And when we talk about the Christian and mental health in a few weeks, we will talk about sin and responsibility. But for now, we want to acknowledge that this is beyond what is normal. And in the realm of illness, it is not just ill health or our normal Christian experience. It certainly involves all of our proclivities to sin and unbelief, but it is so much more. Okay? So I really wanted to just give you a bit of a, just a, 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 to sit and listen to what it might be like for someone who has depression or anxiety and, and the, um, that is outside of the realm of normal. Because it's hard to understand when 
you haven't ever been depressed. And the ease most people can do is, well, I get sad, so is, this, is it like that? Well, it's not like that. It's, it's a lot more than that. So let's talk a bit about diagnosing the condition. Okay, because I think this is important if we're going to see what, what is involved in actually having a depressive illness or an anxiety illness. And we'll start with depression. Depression is often divided into two main categories, reactive and endogenous. Reactive depression can usually be traced to some obvious trigger, perhaps a loss or some stressful life event or, or even a major change. I became depressed when I was about to get married, though I was very happy and excited to do so. It, it seems, for me, this was a, a trigger. Endogenous depression is often thought of as being organic or biological in origin. And this is the name given to those depressions that seem to have no obvious external triggers and are often traced to genetic dis positions. Studies have shown that a person is more likely to be depressed if they have a family history of depression, indicating that there is this possible genetic link. My mother, my father, and my sister have all been seriously depressed and struggled with depression and continue to struggle with it since they were teenagers. All of them. Um, it should be noted here, though, that just because there may be a genetic predisposition doesn't mean that living with depression is inevitable. It's merely another factor to consider. It has been thought that reactive depressions are more episodic and acute than endogenous depressions and therefore have a better prognosis in the long term. Endogenous depressions seem to be deeper rooted and more stable. Well, this has been the traditional method of classifying depression, though now we see that it is not so clear cut. It is not so clear cut. Many endogenous depressions, which is how I would probably classify my experience if I had to, often does seem to have a trigger. I have been dealing with depression for 30 years now. And when my medication stops working, which it seems to do every few years, just sort of poops out, which is a actual clinical term, it poops out, um, I crash. Even if everything in my life is objectively positive and stable and I love God. For no reason, I can crash, and then I have to get back on getting help. Another problem with defining depression as biological or reactive, or to say my depression is biological, as opposed to being mental as a reason for it, is like saying my fire is hot and yours is light. Every depression has biological components. Biology is an aspect of every depression. Chemistry in the brain affects thinking, and thinking affects brain chemistry. You can't reduce depression or any mental illness to one dimension or aspect without destroying the phenomenon of what depression is. And instead of trying to locate the causes of depression as a basis for the diagnosis, 
it may be more helpful to think in terms of the character of the depression, which has led to more labels in the psychiatric community. Less severe depression has been termed situational depression or dysthymic disorder, while more severe depression is often termed clinical depression or major depressive disorder. The dysthymic disorder tends to last longer and is diagnosed actually after it has lasted two years or more. Um, while you may be diagnosed with major depressive disorder even after two weeks, you don't have that same time frame. Dysthymia then is a milder and longer lasting depressive disorder. Doctors like to make diagnoses and they like to put their labels on things. In reality, the only difference other than length is that the dysthymia omits some of the more severe symptoms associated with a major depressive disorder. Sometimes you may have more of a dysthymic depression with major depressive episodes. And it's like, okay, I'm not gonna remember that. Well, don't worry. It, I don't really think too much about those labels either. It all gets very, very confusing. But it goes to show you that while we have our little boxes and labels, not everyone fits into those boxes. And so you really just need to listen to the person and then um, take that as your starting point for offering help. Taking a step back from the details of clinical diagnosis and lumping both together then, um, here are the conditions that constitute a diagnosis of, diagnosis of depression from the DSM-5. And I have this in your handout, not for you to memorize, there won't be a test on it, but, but just for your, for your information. Um, of these symptoms, you need five for a major depressive disorder and two to be classified with a dysthymic disorder. At least one of the symptoms has to be a depressed mood or a loss and or a loss of interest or pleasure. One of those has to be present. These symptoms need to be present every day or nearly every day for a, mental, for a major depressive disorder and just often for a dysthymic disorder. And these are the symptoms. And after it, I've sort of indicated whether it is a symptom that is more associated with one or the other. One of the symptoms, and you need to remember for a de major depressive disorder, you need to have five. And um, so it's not like, you know, I'm sad, I'm going into the doctor, I, I, I'm sad, so I must have depression. It, 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 this is what constitutes an actual debilitating illness. Five of these, number one, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Number two, marked diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities, most of the day, nearly every day. And remember, one of those has to be present, at least. Significant weight loss or decrease in appetite for a major depressive disorder. Uh, perhaps overeating, which may be more common in dysthymia. Insomnia or hypersomnia is present in both thick instances. Psycho psychomotor agitation or retardation. You just can't get your body moving. Um, 
or, or it's you're, you're, you got twitches or you, things like that. Fatigue or loss of energy. Both. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive and inappropriate guilt. Loss of self-esteem. Uh, so the excessive inappropriate guilt, more for a major depressive disorder, a, a milder, more general lack of self-esteem, maybe for dysthymic. Feelings of hopelessness. Diminished ability to think or concentrate. Indecisiveness. And recurring thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation or suicidal attempts for major. So you can see if you have five of these, you're, you're quite debilitated. Um, quite debilitated. And for a generalized anxiety disorder, it's not as long a list, but number one, excessive anxiety or worry more days than not for at least six months. So you can't just be worried for a few weeks and be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. This is lasting six months or longer over a number of events and a number of activities. Difficulty controlling the worry. And associated with three or more of the following symptoms, restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, uh, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or the mind going blank, irritability, muscle tension, and sleep disturbances. And to being diagnosed with anxiety, the disturbance is not better explained by another mental disorder. So if it's better explained by another mental disorder, a part of that, then that's the diagnosis. Symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And the symptoms are not attributed to another substance. Now, you think, okay, great. I'm not a medical doctor. Why, why, why did you present these symptoms? And, I, and in conclusion, let me tell you, let's backtrack and sort of see where we've gone today. First of all, we began with some descriptors of depression and anxiety from personal experiences that, that typify the illness. Though we have to remember that though there are commonalities in experience, each person will experience things differently. And this is important if we are going to enter into another person's experience, which is an, an, an important part of, of empathy, right? Um, when there are things that we don't understand, the tendency is to quickly sweep it under the rug, package it nicely, offer a solution, and move on. But sometimes you have to weep with those who weep. You just have to, to sit and listen. I think Job's friends should have done that more. <laughs> when we look at the diagnosis criteria, what was the point of, of that? Well, this was not only to further describe the illness, but to show that the criteria for illness goes beyond normal, everyday sadness, depression, or anxiety. You're not going to be slapped with a disorder because you've been anxious or depressed for a few days over something that is quite obviously depressing. That's a different thing. 
It also shows that because a person is sad or down, this is normal. And a number of things need to be in place to be categorized as an illness. But what it might mean for us as a church is that knowing the symptoms may help us in our care for the de depressed person in the church. And, and it may indicate then that we need to be seeking some additional help that perhaps we're not equipped to give, right? So when you're dealing with someone who's depressed, at what point do you say, now this is getting at actually a little bit beyond my skill set? Um, whether that means going to see a doctor for medication, we'll talk about that coming up. But that there are times when that's quite appropriate. So um, also in dealing with people in the church, sort of thinking, okay, we're entering into some pretty major illness type stuff here, possibly. Um, or I can obviously see what's depressing you. This isn't bad. We've got some hope here. Let's work on it, right? So we do need to know uh, where common everyday experience enters that realm of, of, of illness. Next week, we'll look at the complexity of the person and the complexity of mental health. And then the week after, the causes of depression, and then the week after, some of the treatments for depression. Okay. Any questions while we, we have about five minutes before we can close up? I know it's a bit of a heavy thing today, and it's like, oh, just a bunch of symptoms and depressing stuff. But it, I think it's important to sort of hear. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and yes, um, yes, 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 and yes, because <laughs> that's how it goes. Um, it can be the time, it can be the length, it can be the severity, but what I was trying to show with that diagram last week is, is you don't want to say, well, I have a mental illness, so I'm off the hook for trying to deal with things because I'm not on this continuum. Just as everyone deals with mental ill health and tries to get better, you can with mental illness. And you might actually have a mental illness and actually be, have some really good mental health, healthy mental skills. And we'll talk about more of that, of that coming up in the next weeks. Um, but a lot, person with a mental illness will often spend most of their time into, in that mental ill health range. Um, but there are people who spend time in that really dark part maybe after a death or a funeral or something, but they move out of it. it, it it's not really an illness. It's, it's normal and it's intense. But then there's the depressed person who might spend a lot of time there, but now this is something else. That, that now, now it's not just a normal reaction to think that's in, something that's intense. Now it's, it's got a life of its own.
Yeah, not everyone who is depressed admits that they're depressed, but you can you can see for you can see a lot of um, obvious signs. Um, you, you, it takes so much energy to hold it together. So especially talking to their family members, and when they when they don't have to hold it together, what are they like at home? Um, are they disengaged? Are, were they previously engaged, but now they're withdrawn? Are they, are they angry all the time? Um, you can often sense when someone's just flat. But one of the reasons I think that it is important to raise in the church is because I, I think that when we... And I'm going to say safe space, although I'm so tired of that term in our society, a safe space, right? But in a sense, that's true. We have a safe space in this church to, to then say, yeah, I can talk about my experience. Uh, I'm not going to have people jumping on me and I'm, you know, saying I'm a man of no faith or little faith. Or, you know what I mean? So there are things you can look for. Um, but it's hard because it just takes time walking with and getting to know the person and seeing what has changed in their life. So this is where we have to ask questions and ask questions and talk and relate. And then it's not just, oh, I can totally see the package there, right? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. I'm sure a lot of you have said, How are you doing? And I said, I'm good. I'm good. Everything's good. I don't want to get, you don't want to get into it. And, and not every, it's not appropriate to get into it all the time, right? Um, like, when I meet you on a Sunday morning and I'm in a depressive, I'm not going to start, well, yeah, sit down, let me tell you how I'm doing. You don't, we don't, it's, having depression is not an excuse to dump on people. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to dump on people. Um, and so when you say, how are you doing? You'll get the, fine. And it's not, and it's not really, that they're wanting to lie about it. They just don't want to get into it, right? But it's those people then who you befriend because you're not going to be offering care to just anyone you see. It's the people you befriend who you come alongside of, who you get to know, who then are saying, oh, you're actually spending time and caring about me? Now we can talk, right? So still ask people how you're doing. It's okay. And how it strikes the depressed person, well, that's on them. I'm sorry to say. It's on, like a depression is not an excuse. You don't have to tiptoe around. It, just because you have depression or an illness does not, is not an excuse to be treated specially or with kid gloves, right? We don't need that. We just want someone to understand what we're going through. I don't know if it helps because there's no really easy answers in, in all of this, but. Well, let's wrap it up there. If you have any more that you want to say or think, uh, come talk to me, and, uh, and I hope you come back next week. Let's pray. 
So Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time. It, it is a hard time uh, probably to hear these kinds of things. Um, but Lord, I thank you that, that you have um, saved us and love us and given us a community, even not, not just a loose community, but that you've made us members of the same body. And that where, where one part of the body hurts, the whole body is affected and we can help and learn and talk and, and all for your glory, Lord. I pray that as we learn these things, you will help us to be a compassionate, empathetic, um, but not wishy-washy, unsoft people. And we pray this in your name. Amen.